Over the last uh, few weeks, our country has seen a series of violent attacks on our own lands, perpetrated by our own people. And whenever these happen, there's really two tragedies that occur. The first is the actual act of violence. It's all those lives that are lost. It's all those people who have lost a child or a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a spouse that has meant the world to them and they no longer will have that person in their lives. And there's that tragedy, that day, that moment. What strikes me, though, is besides the fact that these tragedies are increasing in frequency, is that there's a second tragedy that occurs right after these events. And it's how our nation reacts. I remember when September 11th happened. I remember exactly where I was. I, I remember just staring at the TV, thinking this can't be real. It didn't seem like it could be real. It seemed like it had to be something from a movie, or it, there's just no way this was happening, not in real life. But what struck me about that pain and suffering is even back then, what, 12, 13 years ago, what immediately followed was a nation that didn't tear itself apart after that, but came together. A tragedy struck, and we dealt with that tragedy by coming back together. We, we dealt with that tragedy by reaching out in love and in compassion, and with purpose, to try to fix these issues. And what I see happening in us today is that's not what we do anymore. When these things happen, immediately, two sides develop, and then they go to tear each other down. And brothers and sisters, I know there's a lot of different political views, and I know there's a lot of different people who have ideas of how to solve these things, but I don't think we're talking about any of the right ones. I don't think guns are the problem. I don't think video games are the problem. I think our hearts Amen. are the problem. Amen. And so when these tragedies strike, though, what happens is, is because we feel so sad, because we feel so afraid and because we feel so helpless, we latch out for anything that we can grab that will make us feel better. Unfortunately, when we do that, we often do it without intelligence. We often do it without compassion. We often do it without patience. We often do it without really thinking through who we are, what we stand for, why we think this thing would work, and how do we actually find a real solution. Because we just want to grab something. Right? We just want to find an easy, quick solution. I'll give you a less, far less dramatic example of this. In my own life, I have struggled for over a decade with my weight. And I always try to latch on to a silver bullet, to a quick win, right? I'll be up late at night. I'll see some infomercial, normally by Bowflex, 
I'll see this great workout machine and go, that's the solution. If I only had the M5 elliptical stair climber, which is not an elliptical or stair climber, it's a hybrid. Well, then I would be in shape. And it's funny because when I first got married, my wife would be along with me on these journeys going, yeah, you should get it. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. As the decade has gone by, she's a little less reluctant for me to jump into these purchases because there's like six or seven of them in our house now. And so her thing is like, I don't know that this is going to solve it. <laughs> the last five didn't seem to solve it. I don't sure this one's going to solve it. And she's right, because the issue is not the workout equipment in my house. The issue is not my knowledge of how to lose weight. The issue is my self-discipline. That's the issue. The issue's me. The issue's changing my behaviors. The issue's changing the way I think. The issue is, is breaking my old bad habits, throwing them away, and picking up new good habits. But can I be honest with you? That's way harder than just buying a new elliptical. So I don't want to really talk about that, because that's hard. Let's just buy the new elliptical, and everything will be better. And if we're real, a lot of us, when we have our own personal issues, and now what we see as a nation when we have national issues, we do these same dumb things. We jump to something that we think will address the symptom, but we don't really go to the root cause. And brothers and sisters, if you know anything about medicine, you know you don't want a doctor who just treats your symptoms. You want a doctor who treats the root cause of the issue. Amen. God warned us that this would happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he talked about what it would look like one day. And I think as we read this, we realize that we're kind of in that one day. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, and brutal haters of good. They will be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have defined or they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. I read those things and I think of our country. We are people who are all in love with what the world can offer. We're in love with materialism. We're in love with the way we look. We're in love with power. We still have to try to act like we're good. Right? We want to we superficially have this cover on that makes you think I'm a good person and I'm doing things for a good reason. But I don't know how much of us that's really what's motivating us. And I think ultimately what has become the problem in our country is we are lovers of self. We don't see people anymore. We see obstacles. We see 
likes, we see friends, we see comments, we see social media followers, we see things that can enhance my image, but we don't see people. And that has to change. And so brothers and sisters, well, we jump into the word today, what I want to inspire you with God's word to do is realize you're not hopeless. The problems that we see every single day in this country, you are not hopeless to change. In fact, you have as much power as anybody to change these things. And you can change them every single day of your life. But there has to be intention and there has to be purpose and there has to be passion to do that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, I'm going to go through a story that if you're a church-going person, you've probably heard more times in your life than you can count. But just because we've heard it more times than we can count doesn't mean we don't need to hear it one more time. Because God doesn't care just that you know the story. He cares that you apply the story. That the story has come to live in your heart and in your soul and change the way that you go about your day to day. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, that being Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so let me pause there because I think this is important. If you've been at this church for a while, we talk about love God, love people, follow Jesus every week. And so if you've been here for years, you've heard that probably more times than you can count. And clearly, this man that is talking to Jesus, he's heard that too. He's heard that too, and in fact, he knows it. He gives a great answer to the question. And in fact, he gives one of the best answers we see in the Bible. Often when Jesus talks to people about being saved and being part of the kingdom and having a relationship with God, they don't answer it that well. And so he gives this answer about we've got to love God and we've got to love people. That's what we've got to do. But then he asks this question that reveals so much about his heart. He goes, but who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Why is he asked that question? Right, if he knows it's about love God, love people, why does he ask, who's my neighbor? Well, it doesn't specifically tell us. I think we can infer the reason he asked that question is he's looking for a loophole. He's looking for an out. Right, if I just go with the most broad sense of neighbor as being people, well, that stinks. That means all these people are my neighbors, and i got to love all of them. And they're all difficult. i got to love the guy who cuts me off at work. i got to love the person who stole my job. i got to love the person who undermines me. i got to love the person who thinks I'm an idiot. i got to love the person who has everything I wish I had. 
Right? I got to love all these people? Do you know these people? And so what he's trying to find is, what's this nice little loophole? Are we just talking about the two people who live to my left and to my right? I can deal with that, maybe. Are we just talking about my, my blood relatives? Are we just talking about my friends? See, what's sad is I saw some of you right there, you're like, no, that would be hard. You don't know who my neighbor is. You don't know who lives to the left or the right to me and my blood relatives. You obviously haven't met them. <laughs> and so you get it. You get why it'd be nice to have a loophole here. Right? Because you want to find those difficult people in your life and figure out a way to go, but you, I can push to that don't have to love category. That's what we're really trying to do. It says, how do I push some people to that category so I can just be like, I don't have to love you because you're too hard. And so Jesus answers, as he always does, in a parable, a story, a way to make somebody think. And so in verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him for half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed to the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them, and he put them on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... When I return, I will repay it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? And he, being the man who asked him the question, said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Amen. And so let me break down a, a few things that you and I may miss at times if, if we don't have deep understanding of the spirit of the biblical context. One, so the, the priest basically is like your pastor, your priest today. This is a religious authority figure. This is somebody whose job, not just their faith, but their job is tied to the work of God's kingdom. And so the first time that Jesus tells this story, you and I were kind of robbed of it because we've heard this story several times. But when you think about the first time he told it, clearly these people think this priest, this man of God, this man who does righteousness, when he sees this man injured, surely he's going to stop. But instead, when he sees him hurt, what does he do? He doesn't even just ignore him. He actually crosses to the other side of the road. Right, what's the point? Like, I don't want your dirtiness and ugliness even around me. Now, brothers and sisters, before you judge too harshly, how many of us have seen somebody on the side of the road and not made eye contact? Or have you ever switched lanes so you wouldn't have to be in the lane that they're walking down? Maybe I'm the only evil person who's done that. All right, let's just act like that's not there. 
know what's actually scary is they've done a lot of social science tests on this where they'll go to very crowded places like New York City or London and they'll have somebody lay out on the street crying for help. And they wait to see how long it takes for someone to stop. About six years ago, there was a person in New York City who was mugged late at night and stabbed. And the wound itself was not fatal. So they have the video, and they show this person getting stabbed and falling to the ground, and the person runs off. You then watch as five people over an hour pass by that person. One of them stops and takes a picture. No one calls 911. No one helps. And that person died. Why? Well, especially in large groups, what tends to happen is you and I get what we call groupthink. And so if I'm in a large crowded area and hundreds of us are passing this person who, who seems to need help, we are wired to go, well, everybody else is doing that, so I, I guess I should do that too. I guess some, somebody else will take care of it. Somebody else will address it. Somebody else will handle that mess. But brothers and sisters, I think the first thing I want you to see here is that the way that Jesus structured this story was for us to be shocked. Right? First a priest, then a Levite, which is basically like a deacon, another person who's supposed to be in the church, serving the church, working in the church. If you ever thought there was going to be a righteous, holy person, it should be these two by title. And both of them passed to the other side. The third person, though, is kind of shocking because it's a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know your, your context of Middle Eastern history, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other. It was so bad that Israelites, when they were traveling, if they had to go through Samaria, they wouldn't. They would add three days of travel to their journey to go around Samaria because they didn't even want the dirt of the city on their feet. Now, why did they hate the Samaritans? They hated the Samaritans because they were mixed bread. The Old Testament, there's periods of time where the Israelites are taken from their home and they are forced to be slaves and workers in a foreign country. And the majority of them at some point come back home, but there was this group that stayed. They didn't get moved. And instead of staying pure to God's word and staying pure to God's laws, they intermarried with all the people around them, and slowly their culture became this, this hodgepodge. Right? They're kind of Jewish, kind of not. And so when the Jewish people came back and they saw them, they felt like they'd betrayed them. You betrayed our God, you betrayed our culture, you betrayed who we were. So there was this long, deep hatred. And so when Jesus is first telling the story, once the priest and Levite walk by, now a Samaritan, you're like, he's definitely not going to stop, and there's probably a 50% chance he just finishes the job. But instead, the Samaritan stops. Why? Why? And in fact, he doesn't just stop. Right? He takes care of the guy in that moment, puts him on his own donkey, takes him back into the city, gets him a place, pays for like two weeks of care, 
and says, hey, if it's more than this, I got it. You get this man back on his feet. Whatever the cost is, when I get back, I'll pay it. I mean, that's above and beyond. Right? This isn't you picking somebody up on the street who's injured and helping them and getting them to a hospital. This is you getting them to the hospital and going, the bill's on me. Bill's on me, you take care of them, and hey, however long they're here, I'll pay the medical bill. That's not like nice. That's weird love. That's strange love. Like that's so unbelievably generous. And from a Samaritan. Now why did Jesus pick a Samaritan in the story? I think Jesus chose a Samaritan as a story to teach you and I a very important thing, which is we need to see individuals, not groups. You and I need to see individuals, not groups. Our country has become all about group identity. Right? It's black, it's white, it's Mexican, it's Latino, it's gay, it's straight, it's transgender, it's all these different things. And everybody is in their groups. Republican, Democrat, right? We're all in our groups. And if you're not in my group, you don't matter. If you're not in my group, I don't care. What I fight for, what I focus on, what I vote for, what I empower, what I care about is my group. And if you're not in my group, sorry. Sorry. That's totally against what God was trying to inspire. Because the reality is, when you only see groups, you miss the soul. When you only see groups, you miss the individual spirit that was woven together by God. You miss a person who has hopes, dreams, fears, and things to overcome in their life. You miss a person that needs love and needs help. We don't look this way anymore. We look to throw you in a group, and what that group allows us to do is go, well, only my group's my neighbors. If you're outside that group, you're not my neighbor, so I don't have to love you. I don't have to care about you. And brothers and sisters, I think you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Jesus and why he's so awesome. The beauty of Jesus was he never saw groups. He was the guy who could be in the midst of thousands and he'd see the one person who was sick and had faith and needed help and he'd stop and help that person. Jesus was the one who could be in a city full of festivals full of fun activities, full of great food, full of great music, full of great activities. And he would verge out to the outer limits of that city and he'd find those who were sick and were lonely and who were broke and he'd help them. Jesus could always see the people. Which is why so often Jesus hung around the wrong people. Right? The Pharisees would look at him and be like, what are you doing? You're eating with sinners. Your followers, you picked uneducated fools. Why? Because Jesus didn't care about group politics. Jesus didn't go, well, I can only get students who have been formally educated their whole life, so i got to go with this group of people. No, Jesus walked around and went, you, get who I am and what my mission is. Come on, let's go. You, you have faith. You need help. Let me help you. 
And this is why you'd see him interact with women at a time that women were not supposed to be talked to. This is why he would help a Roman when Jews hated Romans. This is why he would help beggars and lepers who are the outpushed of society. And he'd be there with them. Why? Because he saw people, individuals. And he poured out love for those people. We've got to do that more. Like, if you know me, you know I have political views. If you know me, you know I have views about a lot of things, and I normally stand pretty firm in them. But you know what I've learned is that most people aren't trying to be evil. And so even people who have very different views than me, it's not normally because they wish the world to burn in hellfire. It's just they come from a different place than me, and they have a different logic than me. And if I can sit down with them and I can understand that we actually might have the same dream, we're just going about that dream in different ways, well, then we might be able to actually show each other love and respect and care, and we might actually get somewhere. Versus what we do now is we just push everybody away who's not just like us. When I see these mass shootings, the thing that saddens me the most is not just that that individual obviously was so hurt themselves, so deranged in their own way of thinking, so lonely in their own approach to life, but that they didn't see other human beings as humans. That they couldn't see that they weren't just wrecking their own life, but dozens of other people's lives. And it didn't matter. But I think if we're honest, I think a lot of us go through life like that. I think a lot of us go through life just seeing a blur of people and not seeing individuals. Not seeing people who are handcrafted by God. Not seeing people who need love, who need comfort, who need care, who need compassion. And so, brothers and sisters, what I hate when these things happen is we immediately jump to, like, well, let's get rid of video games or let's get rid of guns. And look, I, I, those are interesting conversations. But you know what they don't do? They just take tools out of people's hands. They don't change the heart. What was broken in that person was not what was in their hand. It was what was in their soul. And where I want you to feel empowered is, guess what? God has made you to be a people who go and touch people's souls. You have the ability to be, as the Bible says, light in the midst of darkness. And to be a light that the darkness does not overcome. You have the ability to be the people who, just like Jesus, walk throughout the world. And every day you see these people all around you who just need someone to love them, to care about them. I once had a lady at work start crying to me because I asked her how she was doing. And what happened was I saw her, I said, hey, how's it going? And I could kind of tell something was off. And you know how normally we work, we say, how's it going? We don't actually want to start a conversation. We're just kind of saying hi, right? You ever want to throw somebody when they go, how's it going? Go, well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me talk to you about it. They don't know what to do. 
But I could see something was off, and, and so she was about to pass me. I said, hey, wait, wait, no, really, are you okay? And she just starts crying. All this stuff in her life had been happening, and she didn't feel like she had anybody to talk to. And I hadn't thought one second about saying hi or how you doing. I just did because it's habit. And all of a sudden, just her whole life is just poured out. And I felt blessed that God had used me in that moment, but I also felt sad that as many people as are in her life, her only outlet was somebody at work who she barely knew. Because even though she had all these people around her, nobody was really caring about what was happening to her. How many of us are like that? You know, kids, you're, you're in here today. In a couple of weeks, or I think some of you tomorrow, you go back to school. And it's always easy when you jump back into school to go find your buddies and your pals and hang out with them and how was summer and how are you doing. You want to eat lunch with them and right, you want to show that kindness and compassion to those people you love. But what about the kid at the table all by himself? What about the person who's brand new at school and is probably terrified to be there? Has left a place with friends. Has left a place with family. And has come to a brand new place where they don't know anybody and they're terrified to be there. Here they are sitting by themselves and they know everybody's looking at them. Everybody's judging them. You know what it would mean to those kids to just walk up and sit down and have lunch with them? I mean, right, like, smallest little thing in the world, right? To spend your 30-minute lunch sitting next to somebody you don't know. So small, so easy. But it can mean so much. So much. The second thing I want to urge you guys is not just to not see groups, but see individuals, but is also to realize what Christ taught us, and that's we love because of who we are. See, this is completely opposite to how the world has taught us to be. The world has taught you, you love those people who make you feel good. Right? And let's be real. That, that makes you feel special. Right? I feel special because of the way my wife loves me. It's a unique love. It's not like she loves other people that way. At least I hope not. She's not even listening. Uh, she's in the back with the baby. I was hoping to get one of those looks. <laughs> And so I feel special because I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why she loves me more than other people. But for whatever reason, she has this affection for me. And it makes me feel really special. And I want to return that to her. And I want to love her in a way nobody else does. And so that love is, is cool because it's unique. But we've kind of let this become the formula for the way that we love everybody in our lives is that I love you if you give me something back. I love you if you're uniquely valuable to me. I love you if you're funny or you're kind or you're cool. But if you don't offer me any of those things, then I don't love you. It's why so many of us have had bad relationships where something went wrong in our lives, right? Something changed, and all of a sudden the love we were getting from somebody now just disappears. Right? I mean, I used to look like Brad Pitt. I'm lucky my wife doesn't love me just because of the way I look. Because I sure as heck don't look like Brad Pitt anymore. You could, you could shave Brad Pitt's hair and give him a fat suit, and I still wouldn't look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> so I'm glad that her love for me wasn't tied to a condition. 
But let's be real, I think we've all been in relationships that are like that. And when you're in those conditional relationships, the fear is, is what happens if this thing that you love me for goes away? What if you love me because I was beautiful and now I'm not? What if you love me because I was powerful and now I'm not? What if you love me because I was rich and now I'm not? Now, now does a relationship go away? And so you and I, we've been trained by the world on how to love. And what we do is we only give our love to people who earn it. That is not how God loves. And thank goodness. If God only loved those who deserved it, we would all be dead. Not a single one of us is worthy of his love. He loved because he is love. He loved not because we earned it or who we were or we deserved it. He loved because God is love. And what God said is, I will be loving because that's my character. And you can't change it. You can revile me. You can hate me. You can curse me. You can sin against me. You can deny I exist. You can do all those things. And I'm still going to love you because I'm love. See, as Christians, we often talk about power, love, and self-discipline. And that power, it's not the kind of power that I can walk into a room and just beat everybody up. It's the power of knowing who I am in the eyes of God and not being changed by the world. And so what God asks you as his children is be like him. Be a people who walk in and go, I will be loving. And not because anybody in here deserves it, but because God has asked me to be loving. So even if you're a jerk, I'm going to love you. Even if you hate me, I'm going to love you. Even if you're annoying and don't know when to shut up, even when I've zoned out of your conversation, I'm still going to love you. Because God wants me to be loving. Why did you say amen when I said that? You looked right at me. Is that me? <laughs> God wants us to be loving because that's who we are. And so, brothers and sisters, what I love about this is this means you're a life changer. I mean, those of you who go to work and go to school every day, how many lives do you interact with? I mean, in high school, you were probably interacting with a couple hundred people a day. At work, how many people do we interact with? What if instead of just being a coworker, we were a light in that office? We were a light in that family. We were a light in that school. And instead of going in there to get what we wanted, we went to give what God had given us. We went to give what God had poured into our lives. And see, God's beautiful on this. He promises. He says, I'm like a living stream inside of you. I'm like a living water that can never go unquenched. If I'm in you, I will give you unlimited love. And that unlimited love isn't just for you. It's not just so you can soak it up. It's so that it can fill your cup and overflow 
to hit all those people around you. It's so that wherever you go, not only are you a person who is content and joyful and passionate because you have this love of God in your heart, but because it's spilling over, it impacts everybody who touches your life. Brothers and sisters, we have an unbelievable opportunity to be the very answer to the problem we see each and every day of our lives. Right now, everybody is urging you to hate. Everybody is urging you to fight. Everybody is urging you to find your group and forget all others. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We are to be a people of love. The Bible tells us a very beautiful truth. It tells us that we love because He, God, first loved us. And so I want you to remember that because I'll be real with you. This is very, very easy for us to talk about on Sundays. Right? Because we're, we're, we're in our group. This is our group. Now, we're lucky our group's not defined by politics. Our group's not defined by how much money we make. Our group is not defined by race. Our group is defined, though, by our love for Jesus Christ. And so it's very easy in this building right now, in this room, to love because this is our people. This is our group. This is our family. It gets a heck of a lot harder, though, when you walk outside those doors. And so what God reminds you is when it gets hard and when you want to stop and you want to be hateful or you want to be angry or, you know what, you just want to be passive, you remember this. You remember the reason that you keep churning forward, the reason you keep loving, the reason you keep fighting because he did that for you when you didn't deserve his love either. If God can love that person enough to die for them, you can love them enough to say hi. If God can love that person enough to send his one and only son to spill his blood on a cross to pay for their sins, I think you can have a good conversation with him. That's what God is calling us to do. And brothers and sisters, I hope you're excited about it. Because here's the real beauty of this. I know you look around this room when you go, I mean, Pastor Luke, it's a great sermon, but, well, you're probably not thinking it's a great sermon, but it's a mediocre sermon, Pastor. It's, it's okay advice. But we're 60 people. We're talking about a problem that starts with millions. What well, we are. We are. But how big is your sphere of influence? How different would your work look if just you brought this kind of love and impacted those people? And what if just two or three of them, they changed because of this love and they started being that way? And what if a couple of you did that at your high school or your elementary school and it started changing just a few people's lives? Then what would happen? See, this can spread far more than we think. And it comes not for you voting for somebody in Washington. It comes not for you going on social media, writing some post or liking something and being done for the day. It comes from you every single moment of every single day showing love to the real people 
in your life. And nothing can stop you from doing that. Love God. Love people. Love God. Love people. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to be with our nation. Father, we've never been a perfect nation, but there was a time when more of us cared about your word, your truth, your wisdom and guidance. There was a time, Lord, when we would come to each other in love and peace. And Lord, as we look around the world today, we see that as less and less likely. Everywhere we look, someone's angry, somebody's mad, somebody's hateful. And Lord, what we ask is that we, you will use us that we will be instruments in your mighty hand. That, Father, in our homes, in our schools, in our families, in our workplaces, you will use us to be your light in the midst of that darkness. To be your love in a world full of hate. Father, may you use us to spread the love, the peace, and the power that only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his beautiful and loving name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Joe to come up to the front with me, and we'll be up here to pray with you. Brother Matt and Brother James will be in the back. Um, you may think that's James's son. It's not. That is James. He just shaved the beard and now looks like one of his kids. He's throwing everybody. Uh, I don't even know if I, I, I think I thought he was more wise because of the white beard and he, you know, he would do this thing and now he can't do that anymore. It's, I, it's really throwing me. Um, I actually thought Donna had moved on to upgraded models, but no, it's still James. So if you have something in your life that you just need to pray about and you want to know somebody else is praying about that, that's why we're up here. And if you don't feel comfortable walking up during the middle of church to do that, that's fine. But seek us out afterwards. We're always here to prayerfully be with you along the journey that God has you on. Right? Let's all stand. In desperation